1890, a location east of Titusville on North Merritt Island was purchased by a group of wealthy graduates from Harvard University who had formed a club often called either Canaveral, Boston, or Harvard Club for the purposes of vacationing, hunting, and fishing, as well as increasing tourism in the area. As reported in the November 28, 1890 issue of the East Coast Advocate, the group bought about 18,000 acres of land for an average of a dollar an acre, including miles of Atlantic Ocean frontage, plus acreage connected with both the Banana and Indian Rivers. The membership fee was $5,000, $150,000 in today's money, and the number of members was limited to 20 men, all graduates of Harvard during the late 1800s. On the death of a member, the spot would be taken by that member's eldest son. The club was to remain in existence until the death of the last member. A three-story, 22-room lodge was built on a rising knoll near Chester Shoals at Cape Canaveral near what was to become Kennedy Space Center's launch pad 39B. It was on the west bank of a finger of Banana Creek, at a time known as Homeport Lake. The members could enjoy the ocean beach with a walk of less than half a mile around the head of the Finger Creek, or excuse me, of the Creek Finger. The club's beachfront property stretched approximately five miles north and south of the lodge. At the time, all transportation connecting the club with Titusville was by a local boat via Pepper Flats, Banana Creek, and the Indian River. Members and their guests were transported in almost a direct line east from Titusville to the property at Chester Shoals by the club's own shallow, shallow draft steamboat, the Canaveral. The club also owned a yacht, which was the Yankee Doodle. It was the first powered steamship to arrive in the area from the north. Boston Club property included a swimming pool, which was claimed to be the first in the southeastern United States. The pool was also used by the pastor of the local or Orsino Baptist Church to perform baptism. During that same time period, the club was said to have also hosted Presidents Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, who came for the winter fishing. Cleveland visited Vivard County in 1888 and may have made subsequent visits to the club. The last group, the last guest to sign the register was in 1922, Colonel William A. Gaston, press, uh, president of the National Shalmut Bank of Boston. In 1945, author K. Reading, a former Massachusetts district attorney and Harvard graduate, bought the balance of the property that hadn't been sold to satisfy tax limits. Reading considered restoring the main structure, but never attempted it. The club would remain in a mothball status from then on. After the end of World War II, the Army came to town, and that started the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, which is now called Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, and that is a whole topic for another day. It's 1961. We were launching men on missiles, just barely touching outer space from the Cape Air Force Station. But the space program was rapidly outgrowing a single-stage suborbital rocket, and thus 
the Nova Project was born. Dr. Kurt Debus and Major General Langton Davis of the United States Air Force were directed to find a place from which to launch huge vehicles like the rejected Nova or soon, or soon developed Saturn V. Cape Canaveral's 17,000 acres weren't, near, weren't nearly large enough. In this study, we considered sites in Hawaii, the California coast, Cumberland Islands off of Georgia, uh, Island in Bahamas, and Padre Island off the coast of Texas. Eventually, they had concluded that the most advantageous site was Merritt Island, right next to Cape Canaveral's facilities. The report was completed on July 31st, 1961, and they spent all night printing it out, after which Dr. Debus and General Layton flew up to Washington and briefed Mr. Webb and Dr. Siemens so that the 84,000 acres of land, sand, and scrub could be acquired for NASA by the government, plus 56,000 additional acres of submerged lands at a total cost of $71,872. 71,872,000. Merritt Island was really an undeveloped area west and north of the Cape. It was selected for acquisition and in that same year was also birthed the Merritt Island Launch Area, or MI or Mila. NASA began gaining titles to the land, taking over the 83,903.9 acres through the outright government purchase. This included the place where the previous Boston Club stood, along with several small towns, such as Orsino, which was located near one of Florida's oldest orange, orange groves, the Dumit Grove. It's also noted that the entire town was to be behind fences and completely demolished by the time this land purchase was finished. The town of Wilson had a thriving lumber company north of what would be the vehicle assembly building in the 1930s. The town of Heath and Audubon, many farms, citrus groves, and several fish camps were also purchased. Negotiations with the state of Florida provided submerged lands resulting in the acquisition of property identified on the original deed of dedication. Much of the state-provided land was located south of the old Hallover Canal and north of the Barge Canal. With the land now purchased, NASA could continue the efforts into putting men into deeper orbits. By 1962, the Redstone rocket was obsolete, and Mercury astronauts were being launched atop the Air Force Atlas rockets at Launch Complex 14 for full orbits instead of infant joyrides. But as the space program advanced, so did the goals. And in that same year, right after the accusation of the land, President Kennedy asked the nation to put a man on the moon and return him safely to the Earth. To do that, you'd need a big rocket, bigger than the Atlas or soon to be used Titan II. But the biggest rocket ever created would not be able to fit within the type confines of the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, and it really required its own bubble, so to speak. Not a single soul who was involved can ever forget the driving urgency that attended the Apollo program. 
The deadline was in within nine years. There was no time to dally. Nor can we forget the dedication of those who worked on it, including the construction crews, who by 1965 numbered 7,000 people at the Cape. Jim Webb once said, The road to the moon will be paved by bricks, steel, and concrete here on Earth. Apollo had to build Complex 39 at a cost of half a billion dollars. That is, they had to finish stage zero before they could proceed to stage one, the launching of the birds. But how will you launch this new projected 360-foot piece? At a time, engineers had considered preparing the vehicle horizontally and then erecting erecting it vertically on the pad, very much like they did with the Atlas and Falcon 9 today. This is simply out of question for a 360-foot bird. So they had to erect that rocket stage by stage. That meant they couldn't have it indoors or outside because of wind of rain. Even a 10 to 15 knot wind would have given them trouble while erecting and higher winds would have proven disastrous. Thus, the Vehicle Assembly Building, or VAB as it is commonly referred to, became an enclosed structure. Now, the question is, would the high, be, high bays be strung out four in a row or built back to back? They decided on the latter format because only two big cranes would be needed instead of four, and because a box-like structure would better withstand hurricane winds of 125 miles an hour. The possibility of hurricanes also dictated that they have two crawlers, one to carry the mobile service structure away from the pad, and one to bring the Apollo Siren 5 and its mobile launcher to shelter in the vehicle assembly building. The height of the building was dictated by the hook length, and we started planning for 465 feet, but then the height was changed to 525 feet. You see, the engineers had no idea how big this bird would be. They didn't know what kind of nest they needed, so they over-exaggerated the plans then to go under. The moon, and they also had no idea if the rocket would require an Earth orbit or a lunar orbit rendezvous, making things even more uncertain at that time. The skill required of the technicians working within Complex 39 and throughout the Kennedy Space Center had to be fine-honed. One legend has it that the crane operator who set the 88,000-pound second stage on top of the first stage had to qualify for the job by lowering a similar weight until it touched a raw egg without cracking the shell. Of the Cape's 26,500 workers, the peak number in 1968, a high percentage of them were men and women who possessed such skills. One can speculate whether such a crew is likely to be ever assembled in one place again. The paths of Complex 39A and B, prime Prime, excuse me, the paths of 39A and 39B prime contractor was a joint venture of Blount Brothers Construction Corporation and M.M. Sunt Construction Corporation, who were also a building the vehicle assembly building at the same time that 
rose on its 4,225 16-inch steel pilings that had been driven more than 160 feet below the sandy surface into bedrock. NASA's Alum Harry May was the Launch Complex 39's project engineer during its creation. Pad A and Pad B are twins, each occupying about 160 acres. They had also planned for a pad C, which explains why the crawler way from pad A to pad B has an elbow-like crook in it. The elbow would have led to C, but the budget was already at the nose's end, noose's end. Today, the non-existent pad C, according to preliminary plans and concept art, would be where the per <clears throat> where would be where the current parking lots for Playa Linda Beach are. In fact, they even had a contingency plan for Pad B even further out in case those launches became more frequent. But the lack of Apollo will, the concern for safety, and the budget cuts in the 1970s forever slammed that door shut because now that area is a national park. The pads were A and B were built about 8,700 feet apart so that an explosion would not wreck more than one of them. They were lo located three and, a three and a half miles from the Vehicle Assembly Building and Launch Control Center. Now, by the time Saturns were getting ready, digital data technology had advanced to the point where firing rooms could be in a structure miles away instead of being feet away, like in the Redstone. Work had begun on the pads in 1962 and was completed on schedule and within budget in 1965. Everything launches and construction they were also launching saturn once at the same time they were building launch pad 39a and 39b had to mesh it was like building a thousand different homes for a thousand demanding people because you couldn't build these pads while they were launching saturn ones over at the cape it's just not dangerous especially when they first launched it von braun was like this thing will never work like, he didn't have any faith in that rocket, but it proved out to be a very good workhorse. Then came another challenge. How do you get the Apollo Saturn V from its birthplace in the Vehicle Assembly Building to the pad from which it would fly for the first time and only time in its life? Early in the program, engineers considered moving it on a three and a half mile journey by water. The barge concept was in deep thinking. The first and second stage would have come from the Cape to the Cape from Louisiana and California, respectively. But by man's oldest form of transportation, since they were too large to go through tunnels or under bridges on the railroads or in cars. On this short trip, why not also float the Saturn V and its mobile launch launcher standing upright on a barge? They even got the Navy to test this idea at the Taylor model at the David Taylor Model Basin in Washington State, which showed that the hydrodynamics requirement of such a top-heavy barge would be too demanding, and even looked into a rail system and pneumatic tire transportation. But they were impractical or way too expensive for the budget they had. Then someone was like, yo, why don't we use these giant tract machines like those used in the strip mine? 
And so what was then designed as a unique crawler or more politely called transporter. As built by the Marion Power Shovel Company, the crawler took shape with eight tracks, each seven by 41 feet with cleats like a Sherman tank, except that, except that each cleat weighed a ton. And they were mounted over, eight, oh, mounted over these eight tracks was a platform bigger than a baseball diamond on which the Apollo Saturn V and its mobile launcher would ride majestically from the vehicle assembly building to pad at a beautiful blistering pace of one mile per hour. In all, the package weighed 9,000 tons. That is the Saturn V all together with the crawler. Two-thirds cargo, one-third crawler. You see, these machines didn't prove to be very reliable. In fact, designing them was a chore. In July of 1965, during a test, some bearings cracked because they had assumed the weight would be equally distributed on various parts of the crawler. They were wrong. The bearings, incidentally, were 10 inches in diameter, and there were 11 sets of them. The problem was met by changing from roller bearings to sleeve bearings. We also topped off the crawler way with 8 inches of Alabama Red River Rock, or Alabama River Rock, to distribute the load evenly and to relieve friction at the turns. Any other rock would have the potential to produce sparks, which were never a good thing under a missile, whether loaded or not. So there were two um, crawlers. One was nicknamed Hans, and the other was nicknamed Franz. Unfortunately, Hans did meet his fate. Now, now that we know how to transport our rocket from where we make it to the launch pad, we have finally arrived at Pad 39A. Let's go get to know the pad. You can't launch a rocket on the ground because you have to have air to lift the rocket under the engines. And you can't build into Florida because of the water table. So you have to raise a rocket on an elevated platform. Also noted, you need a place for your exhaust to expel away. So may I present to you the lightning lane of Kennedy Space Center for your rocket exhaust. A 60-foot <clears throat> wide by 43 feet height high, and a 140-foot long trench. Expels a massive amount of exhaust outwardly and safely. We call it the flame trench. Within the trench, it was lined with thousands upon thousands of heat-resistant bricks to protect the concrete from the extreme, heats of the, from the extreme heat of the rocket's 7.5 million pounds of thrust, steam, and vapors. This would come back to haunt STS-124, and you can go and look into that mission. Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into that today. Any rockets that sit upon this pad, created out of 52,000 me me cubic meters, is given a height boost of 40 feet, saving over $100,000 on propellants. However, to get up that extra 40 feet, you have to fight a 5% grade to the top of the pad. Remember how we said that we couldn't tip our rockets? So 
the crawler was required a leveling system that would keep the Saturn V or any other rocket on it one degree of absolute vertical. The sensing system depended on two manometers, each 135 feet long, extending like an X from corner to corner under the platform. If they showed that the deck was out of level, even by half an inch, it was corrected by hydraulically raising or lowering one or more of the corners. Adjustments were made many times during the trip from the vehicle assembly building, especially when that crawler climbed the five degree incline leading up to the pad. You see, on each side of this flame trench is a cellular, is a cellular structure to support a thick surface called a hard stand. The crawler transporter would place a mobile launcher in the Apollo Saturn vehicle on top of that reinforced slab. Within the slab of concrete, the two-story pad terminal connection room and the single-story environmental control systems room would be within the western side of the pad. The former would house the electronic equipment that would connect communication and digital data link transmission lines from the launch control center to the mobile launcher when it was on the pad. The environmental control systems room would serve as a distribution point for air conditioning and water systems. The high pressure gas storage facility to store and distribute nitrogen and the helium gases piped from the converter compressor facility would lie beneath the top of the pad on the east side. Should a hazardous addition arise that would allow for a safe egress from the aircraft, the astronauts could cross over to the mobile launcher on a swing arm, then ride one of the high-speed elevators from the 104-meter level to level A, 30 stories down at 183 meters per minute. From there, they would slide down an escape tube to a thickly padded rubber deceleration room. Steel doors, much like those on a bank vault, allowed access to a blast room, which could withstand an on-the-pad explosion of the entire vehicle. Those inside could stay alive for at least 24 hours to allow, to allow rescue crews time to dig them out. The emergency egress system was part of the Pad A contract. Together with the launch umbilical tower, the entire stack of a Saturn V atop Pad 39A would be about 435 feet tall with the 40 boot, with the 40 height, excuse me, 40 feet height boost. Now, that height is a dating beacon for the frequent lightning within the area, especially being on the edge of Florida and the tropics. And the only thing you want to date the tower, and that's the thing you don't want to date on the tower, and especially not a fully fueled rocket. During the Apollo program, there was what was known as a cone of safety, a cone surrounding the rocket. That was determined by the height of the lightning rod, and the radius was the same as the height. In theory, the Saturn V had a protection cone of uh, approximately 450 feet around the rocket, where lightning's reach would be mitigated by the launch tower, because on top of the LUT was a lightning conductor to keep the sensitive electronics within the rocket safe and raw, so to speak. In total, 
both launch pads were actively used during the Apollo program. The first launch from Pad 39A was Apollo 4, the first test launch of a Saturn V in 1965. It would be a whole nother year before the pad would ever experience the glory of the F1 engines for Apollo 6. Another relatively successful unmanned test flight of the Saturn V. After the tragedy of Apollo 1, then the triumph of Apollo 7, the two uncrewed test flights of the most powerful rocket on Earth, Pad 39A would finally lift humans into space and for the first time beyond our orbit in December of 1960. I believe Eight. Yes, 1968 with Apollo 8. Between March and July of 1969, the center between launches was an astounding two months, and center was the terminology for what they called intervals between launches. And that's crazy, a Saturn V launch every two months. After the launch of Apollo 12, which got struck by lightning induced or rocket induced lightning, the new launch commit criteria was installed to make sure that lightning would never assault rockets during liftoff again. Pad 39B finally got her spot in the sunlight when Apollo 10 lifted off from her for the dress rehearsal of the upcoming Apollo 11 mission in July. In all, 15 Saturn V's lifted off from Pad 39A and one Saturn V lifted off from Pad 39B. 39A also held the first ever night launch from Florida, which could be seen as far north as North Carolina. But Pad B's time to shine would be during the Skylab and Apollo Soyuz project, as it launched the crews to Skylab, all three. Pad 39A did, la did launch Skylab, and it would be the last launch into the space shuttle program. In 1974, Pad 39A was deactivated, but Pad 39B would remain on the roster in case NASA changed its mind and wanted to reinstate the Apollo program. By 1977, both sites were deactivated as NASA put its efforts into designing the reusable spacecraft called the space shuttle. While that was happening, the large umbilical launch towers, launch umbilical towers were taken apart and many of them scrapped. However, some others would go on to serve another career. Portions of the launch LUT, launch umbilical tower from Apollo 8 and 11 still reside to this day on the same launch pad that they stood at almost 50 years ago. Over 50 years ago on pad 39A. They both went on to continue the legacy of innovation, inspiration, and dedication. <coughs> the LUT, which served 9, Apollo 9, 12, and 14, was placed on pad 39B. Both's purpose was to be the fixed service structure, the, or FSS which is 347 feet tall, preserving over 80% of the launch umbilical tower. There were 12 floors, 20 feet apart, 
each floor is actually not solid, but metal grates. So looking down at your feet, you can actually see down a number of floors. The exception at the time was the 195-foot level where the crew arm resides, and that had solid floors. In the early 80s, you could see the Apollo hammerhead crane, which is also placed atop the launch umbilical tower for the Apollo, from the Apollo programs and the early shuttle launches. Fun factoid. The service arm in the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex is the real launch umbilical tower from Apollo 8, 11, and so on, but it is mated to a white room from somewhere else. The display at the end of the Saturn V contains this part from that launch umbilical tower. It contains the hammerhead crane at the top, on the 380-foot level, and then the 320-foot level, which was the crew access arm. The elevator shaft and uprights are from level 300. So the launch umbilical tower and hammerhead crane continue to live on and fascinate visitors to this day. The FSS would hold everything the space shuttle required for launch, and then some. Attached to the FSS, was the Rotating Service Structure, or RSS. A quarter of the FSS height at 189, the RSS, sorry, was a quarter of the FSS height at 189 feet, which is mounted on a semicircular track that allows it to rotate through an arc of 180, 120 degrees on a radius of 36.6 meters. The rotating service structure pivots on a hinge from the FSS so that the spacecraft changeout rooms fit flush with the orbiter's cargo bay. So that way they can swap out payloads under a contamination-free or clean room conditions. Remember our little X-Lightning? We got bigger and stronger than her. After the early 90s, the Apollo era crane was costing too much to upkeep and was therefore dismantled. But the problem was that there was no cone of protection for the shuttle anymore. However, thanks to evolving technology, they placed an 80-foot tall fiberglass mast on top of the fixed service structure at each pad as the most visible means of protecting the structure itself and the shuttle. While it was on the pad and enclosed, the mast supported a one-inch steel stainless steel cable or cantery wires running over its top. This cable stretched 1,000 feet in two directions and each end is anchored to the ground. It is, its appearance is very similar to that of a suspension bridge tower and its supporting cables, which are two. And there's about, in the total, there's about three other separate cables that also help and support it to the mask mast there's also that another four foot high lightning rod on top of the 80 foot mast that that connects all the cables together the rod's purpose is to prevent the lightning current from passing directly through the shuttle and the structures on the pad any strikes in that area would be conducted down by the cable because of its shape. 
Tacona's safety became an ideal of the past as new technologies guaranteed the safety of teams, equipment, and equipments. <coughs> Other grounding systems in the launch complex 39 area included a network of buried inter interconnected metal rods called the counterpoise that run under the launch pad and su surrounding support structures. There's also approximately 1.25 million feet of tubing and piping at Launch Complex 39, varying in sizes from 2.25 inches to 114 inches in diameter. That is enough to reach from Orlando to Miami. Another thing added was a sound suppression water system. With the orbiter so close to the mobile launcher, the sound waves produced by the space shuttle main engines and massive solid rocket boosters upon ignition could have possibly damaged anything in the orders, orbiter's cargo bay and possibly even the order, orbiter itself. The solution was to reduce the sound waves with a flow of water over the mobile launch platform. A 300,000 gallon water tank located on the northeast side of the pad contains the water used in the system. Using gravity alone, the water is dumped through 16 nozzles atop the flame deflectors and from outlets in the space shuttle main engine's exhaust hole in the mobile launch platform at main engine ignition, which occurs at about T minus two minutes when they're fully running at 104%. When solid rockets boost, excuse me, when the solid rocket boosters ignite and lift off following at T0, a torrent of water flows onto the mobile launcher from six large quench nozzles, or commonly referred to as rainbirds, mounted on its surface. The peak flow rate from pre-liftoff and post-liftoff systems is 900,000 gallons per minute after liftoff. When a shuttle would launch, the intense heat from the engineers would turn much of the water into steam resulting in the large white cloud seen above the pad prior to booster ignition. And talking about booster ignition, the space shuttle flame trench, when un trench underwent some modifications for the STS program or space shuttle program. Unlike, um, unlike Apollo and Soyuz, where they had a single exhaust from a cluster of engines, the space shuttle had two different exhausts coming from two separate engines. There was the three SSMEs, which is the space shuttle main engine, and then the two SRBs, or solid rocket boosters. For the safety, efficiency, and ease of operation, the aging flame reflector from Apollo was moved into a fixed position, which would separate the direction of exhaust so that they wouldn't mingle together. The flame deflector system included an inverted Y-shaped steel structure covered with a high-temperature concrete materials five inches thick that extended across the center of the flame trench. Solid rocket booster plume, which was by far the most exhaust produce, produced by the shuttle, was directed to the north through the open trench. The space shuttle main engines, which would be up and running at full power by T-1 second before liftoff, would be funneled through the flame director up towards the southern end of the launch pad, towards the rotating service structure. There were also two movable deflectors at the top of the trench to provide 
even additional protection to the hardware from the solid rocket booster plumes and to prevent them from damaging the FSS. Pad 39A underwent a renovation between June and September of 1993. Some 13,773 gallons of gray paint were used in two coats, and the 1,866 tons of sand were used in the sand blasting operations. This was to refurbish and repaint the quickly aging LUT and to match the FSS with the RSS in the color scheme of gray. In 2007, the three nearly 500 foot tall lightning rods at Pad 39B would become known as Rolling Sphere were constructed, which originally created for the upcoming Constellation program, which ended with the shuttle, before the shuttle, I should say. However, the means did prove very effective, and this system for lightning protection is used all over Cape Canaveral. The masks do the job well, ensuring that lightning can never cook the electronics or data rocket. The lightning mask at pad 39A and B are struck about five times a year, proving its essential worth. In 1979, Pad 39A would receive a new guest to its legacy home. The Space Shuttle Enterprise was placed on the pad as a precursor to its predecessor. She did a test-out systems to make sure that everything would be ready for when the orbital Columbia would be there. Then, on a glorious April 12th morning in 1981, after a 10-year hiatus uh, from Pad 39A, the Space Shuttle Columbia spread her wings and soared to the sky, opening a new chapter in space history. Pad 39A would remain the exclusive Space Shuttle launch site until the ill-fated morning of January 28, 1986, when the Challenger lifted off for its final flight from Pad 39B. For another 25 years, the space shuttle flew from both launch pads with an average center of six to eight launches in a year, the most being nine center in 1985. By the 2000s, the center dropped to about three to four due to the growing budget cuts and major concerns for crew safety. However, the pads would be occupied 17 times simultaneously from 1985 to 2009, always making sure Pad B would never feel left out or alone for very long. In fact, I've had a, a very special privilege of being able to see a space shuttle on the pad during sunset. It's a sight that you'll never forget, and unfortunately a sight that will never happen again. The last STS mission from Pad 39B was in 2006 to the Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-115. However, this would not be the last time she stood empty. Uh, Space Shuttle Atlantis paid her a visit in 2008, and Endeavour would visit her and be the last shuttle in 2009. Pad 39A would carry the rest of the Space Shuttle missions until the last flight of Atlantis in 2011 to become the 100th flight from that launch site, which had also hosted 85 space shuttle missions. 39B had a very special privilege, and she got to launch the Ares 1X prototype in 2009, 
And that was the last launch from her complex to this day. But instead of being mothballed or just kept in case, you know, maybe we needed a space shuttle, she was stripped to her bones. In 2010, her fixed service structure and rotating service structure were dismantled and scrapped along with her flame deflector from Apollo. Altogether, Pad 39B held 35 space shuttle missions, six Apollo missions, including one to the moon, and a flight test of a prototype vehicle. 46 missions is quite a distinguished career for a launch pad whose main job was a backup site. In fact, pending in 2022 and 2023, she will once again be able to feel fire in her trench as the space launch system will have her maiden test flight from there. A first for Pad 39B. Between the two sites, there were 110 daytime launches as a space shuttle and 20 night launches. Of these, I've actually had the privilege of seeing a total of 12 launches, space shuttle launches, within a three-year period. Yes, I am a very lucky person, and I don't take that for granted. I miss SRBs every day. Then came the eerie silence. Pad 39B was bare and clean. Pad 39A began to become mothballed after STS-125. And the Americans manned spaceflight from the historic launch complex came to a sudden halt. Pad 39B continues to remain silent again to this day. However, not all was lost. By the time 2012 rolled around, the pads were either vacant or being demolished. Then, in a historic first, NASA decided to lease out Pad 39A, a pad with a hundred historic launches to commercial to a commercial space group, an industry that was really still in its infancy at the time. Several suitors cited interest in the pad, including United Launch Alliance or ULA were interested in the possibility of launching Atlas or Delta and participating in the Kansas uh, Kennedy Space Center-led studies, which would be looking for options. Both SpaceX and Blue Origin wanted to lease the launch complex at Kennedy Space Center. Blue Origin, a 13-year-old startup backed by Amazon.com founder of Jeff Bezos gave NASA a proposal in July for converting the pad into a quote-unquote commercial spaceport available to all launch companies. But then SpaceX entered negotiations and they had been launching from the Cape nearby for a few years. However, Blue Origin, who had been at loggerheads with Space Exploration Companies Corporation or SpaceX about leasing LC-39A was not happy. SpaceX wanted the exclusive use of the pad, which said would have been used to be launching the developing Falcon Heavy. Blue Origin, whose case was supported by its business partner, ULA, wanted to make the pad a multi-user facility. Technically, the competition to lease 39A, which NASA said to investigators would be allowed to 
literally rest to the ground if no lease is found. And Jeff Bezos sued because he was like, oh, you guys aren't being fair. Like, you're not listening to me. And so that delayed the selling of the pad. And NASA really wanted to get this out. They wanted it gone by October 1st because it was costing them $1.2 million a year to maintain in a mothball state. Well, Elon did send in an email this, and I quote, from a SpaceX standpoint, we view, quote, Blue Origin and, quote, United Launch Alliance's action, end quote, action as a phony blocking t tactic and an obvious one at that. Blue Origin has not even, has not yet succeeded in creating a reliable suborbital sub spacecraft, despite despite spending over 10 years in development. It is therefore unlikely that they will succeed in developing an orbital vehicle that will meet NASA's exacting standards in the next five years, which is the length of the lease, original lease. That said, that said, I can't say for sure whether Blue Origin's actions stem from malice. No such doubt exists about ULA's motivation. However, rather than fight this issue, there is an easy way to determine the truth, which is simply to call their bluff. If they do somehow show up in the next five years with a vehicle qualified to NASA's human rating standards that can dock with the space station, which is what Pad 39A is meant to do, we will gladly accommodate their needs. Frankly, I think we are more likely to discover unicorns dancing in the flame decks. Unicorns indeed. Elon did bring up a very good point that if you didn't have a vehicle capable of continuing America's venture in space, or even making progress on a capsule able to take astronauts and return them from the International Space Station safely, then you're just wanting the pad for bragging rights. And Elon was right, because five years later, Jeff Bezos has a suborbital, a barely suborbital rocket, and has delayed the space program an immeasurable amount of times. In 2014, NASA did officially give SpaceX a 20-year lease for the complex to launch the eventual Falcon Heavy. But because SpaceX did things differently, they built in 2015 the Horizontal Integration Facility, or HIF, in the middle of the crawlerway just outside of Pad 39A. This would house the future Falcon Heavy rocket. It's associated hardware and payloads during processing. Like the early days of Atlas rockets, they would be rolled out towards the launch pad, then raised to position. For this, they laid two sets of narrow-gauge railroad tracks leading up the former crawlway by which the rocket would be pushed by two airplane tugs up the 5% incline. This was much easier than the space shuttle program, which had to crawl back to the VAB three miles down the road if something went wrong. The transport erector would then become connected to hydraulics on the pad, which would push the rocket up into its vertical position. On the pad was still the RSS and FSS 
which was left over from the space shuttle program. Because it was a different rocket, it may have needed a whole new configuration for the launch pad, rendering all that shuttle hardware ineffective and destined for scrap, leaving 39A very much like her sister for a fat minute. In fact, pad 39A is set to keep its familiar appearance from the space shuttle era during the maiden launch operations of the Falcon rocket. A lot of people thought that the RSS would be incom incompatible with the Falcon Heavy and removed before adding more levels to the existing FSS. Originally, the RSS was to remain while reinforcements to the ever-aging FSS were underway, but it would be later removed due to its age and cost of maintenance. The formal MLP pedestals and some of the Sound suppression system hardware has been removed, and MLP stands for the Mobile Launch Platform. The flame trenches have also been modified. The south side of the flame trench was completely filled in. All exhausts from the Falcon 9 launches will be directed out the north end of the trench via the flame deflector. That side has been resurfaced with refractory concrete to withstand the intense heat of launches. New kerosene tanks have been installed on the northeast side of the pad. The Falcon 9 burns rocket-grade kerosene, or RP-1, and liquid oxygen, LOX, or LOX. And SpaceX plans to utilize the liquid oxygen tanks used by the Space Shuttle program for their liquid oxygen, which I think is honestly pretty cool. By 2017, most of the rotating service structure had been demolished, leaving the gray FSS at the time, the same height that it was with the shuttle. On a very overcast 12th of February, CRS-10, a resupply mission to the International Space Station was poised upon launch pad 39A, atop a second version of the Falcon 9. It was the first uncrewed rocket to stand on the pad since the Skylab stood up upon a Saturn V in 1973. 44, three years later, pad 39A was carrying on that same legacy with the now permanent ISS. With no more unicorns dancing in the flame trench, they were go for launch. Would be the first launch attempt of a privately owned company from the complex. Since then, the Falcon 9s are lifting off from the Space Coast on a fairly often basis. Whether that's 39A or Launch Complex 30 at the Space Force Station in Cape Canaveral, they were, are at least around two to three a month. In the coming years, more changes would continue at the pad, such as the complete and utter removal of the RSS. The only recognizable thing was the post to which the structure was atta attached to. Altogether, they removed more than 500,000 pounds of steel. A roar. One similar to the roar of the SM SSMEs filled the flame trench once again as a prototype Falcon Heavy lifted off in 2018. So far, if you're a prototype, Pad A has got your back. There's never been a serious malfunction knocking on wood. Another chapter opened, and a new page was being written on the legacy of the flights before it. And in August of 2018, the crew access arm was delivered to begin the next era in the 
complex this chapter. SpaceX had inherited a 40-year-old structure that was built with 20-year-old second-hand parts. The fact that they chose to keep it and use it makes the space nerds very happy. Just when we thought it couldn't get any better, the FSS was starting to get painted in black and soon after got platted with black panels, mostly for tower protection, but also a very cool, sleek look to an otherwise bare and dinky tower. True Axis Arm was later raised to the height of a Falcon 9 Dragon capsule that is located on the 217-foot level of the SSS. 70 feet higher than the original Space Shuttle White Room. In 2020, SpaceX would make the former NASA Worm logo cool again by placing it on the side of a brand new Falcon 9 booster destined to the International Space Station with astronauts for the first time since 2011, ending almost another 10-year hiatus. SpaceX has also kept and maintained the same elevators which Sean Young and Bob Crippen rode on when they first egressed into the space shuttle Columbia. And then there's also a phone, the same phone that the space shuttle astronauts used to make a call before launch. Currently, Pad 39A is becoming a 21st century spaceport. Very soon, you will see something very similar to what ULA possesses for vertical launch payload integration on the Falcon Heavy and Falcon 9 rockets. Big changes continue to come to the pad, ensuring this continued use of propelling us into the future. A lot has changed since the Harvard graduates build from the modest two-story clubhouse in 1890, but they definitely set up for quite a show. And if it wasn't for them trying to bring tourists into the area and helping create infrastructure and proving that Merritt Island was a very good place to settle roots, Pad 39A may not even be here today. Thank you for taking your time, and I hope that we see you again on a future podcast.